Let's even warn you against something you should never say. I remember one time I was talking with my wife's grandfather, and um, I was lamenting to him about a job that I had left that I didn't like, and I said, I'm never going to do that again with a whole lot of pride. And I remember, of course, he was an older man and wasn't a man of a lot of words, but I do remember he kind of stopped there and he said, you know, I remember one time I said I'd never work in one of those coal mines again. And I did. Be careful what you say you'll never do. You see, when my wife and I were married, and I went off to the United States Army, and um, had a great time there during my active duty time, and, and I came back, and now I'm married, and a college student, and I needed to find a job. It was right in the middle of the whole Persian Gulf War One, okay? And I would go in and talk with potential employers, and... They'd find out that I was a member of the reserves and they were just afraid that I, I always thought that I was going to get called up to active duty. So I couldn't find a job. I could not find a job. And I was married and had bills and trying to go to college full time and I was getting stressed. I really was. And I was just getting absolutely desperate. I mean, I needed a job to support my wife. You know, we just, we didn't need much, but we needed a little bit. So I finally got this job. I was called the battery boy. Yeah, it was bad. Here's what the battery boy does. You've seen him, okay? And don't make fun of him because it hurts. He stands in this little booth, okay? And he sells batteries. Double A, triple A, C, D. That's pretty much it, okay? And stands there in the booth and sells batteries. And it was the only job I could get. It's the only person who would hire me. And so I would go there diligently and open up the little stand and step inside, okay, and get real comfortable because I'm going to be here for another, you know, six, seven, eight hours and sell those batteries. Hated that job. What happened was I I worked it for a while and it was the only job I could get and, and it was fine. I was thankful for it, I guess. And I got another job, okay, a step up. I now worked at Radio Shack. I guess all that time of, you know, successfully selling batteries, I was now qualified to work at Radio Shack. And so I started working at Radio Shack, and wouldn't you know it, that job kind of fizzled, and now I'm out of job again. I don't have any work. And that's when I said to Nancy's grandfather, well, I know one thing I'm never going to do. I'm never going to go work at Battery One Stop again. No way. Well, you know the end of the story. I looked and I looked and sure enough, just a few weeks went by and there I was again, knocking on the little counter, talking to the manager, hey, uh, think you might be willing to hire me? And I worked there for, I don't know, several months. Pride! Do you understand it? Do you deal with it? Is it something that comes in your life? You know, when I hear somebody say, I will never do such and such. I will often warn them. I'll say, you shouldn't have said that because now the Lord's going to teach you something. Be careful. You know, James says that it's evil if we say tomorrow I will do such and such, right? If I say I will do this tomorrow, you can't change what tomorrow is. So James calls it evil. I'm going to call it pride. Pride. Today we're going to look at pride and its damaging effect and how it's going to how it will sneak up in our lives at the most inopportune time for us, at a time when you never would expect it to raise its ugly head 
It does. Let me give you a definition of pride. This was good. It's undue confidence in and attention attention to one's own skills, accomplishments, state, position, or possessions. So it's an undue confidence or attention for what I can do or what I have or who I am. And it's a struggle that all of us deal with. And it's going to come up in our passage today in Luke chapter 22. You can again turn there. In Luke chapter 22, this pride monster reveals itself again. I call it the big sin. The big sin is pride. And it's amazing how it can come up in all parts of our life. Let's read about it here in Luke chapter 22, verse 21. Let's read our passage, most of it at least. Jesus here speaking. We're going to jump in the middle of, verse, of, of His teaching on communion. We dealt with this last week. And Jesus said this, But behold, the hand of Him who betrays Me is with Me on the table. Jesus here talking about Judas. He's up in the upper room with His twelve disciples. They're celebrating the Passover. He is now instituting communion in the New Covenant. There around Him are His 11 disciples plus Judas that makes 12. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Not a large amount of money. It's about 120 working man's days. You can think of that about $10,000 is what it is that Judas, of today's dollars. What Judas took to betray his Savior. He used that money to buy land that his dead body fell into. What's an acre of land cost? About $10,000. Here we are. That's about what he took to betray his Savior. The one who is Savior. Jesus said, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this, this being betray Jesus. Sounds pretty good, right? Read on. A dispute also. So now here's another topic of conversation. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't that humorous? What, where are the disciples? This is not like, you know, some ragged muffin of, of, you know, losers. These are the disciples, the apostles. Which among us is greatest? And Jesus said to them, now hear this story. The kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. So you picture in this king, this lord... He exercises authority over people. And he's called the benefactor, the one who receives the benefit. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. For you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And then Jesus looks at Simon. He says, Simon, Simon. Saying his name twice. This is a, this is a way of expressing care and concern for Jesus to Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, that's Simon. Another name for Simon is Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day. It's at night that Jesus is saying this. The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Pride. An undue confidence, or it could be an undue attention to yourself. And what's amazing is we see it here in this passage played out among the disciples in Jesus Right there in the experience of Him teaching them, their pride is right there on display. It's funny about pride. It sure is easy to see it in other people. Isn't it? It is so easy to see it in other people. But sometimes it can be difficult to recognize it in yourself. Have you noticed that? And so I thought about this this week. How, how would I warn you and me, us, how would I warn us to the potential of pride in our life? I think it's pretty important for us to consider. You know, it's arrogant. the Bible uses these words as synonyms for pride. Arrogance, presumption, conceit, self-satisfaction, boasting, high-mindedness. These are all ESV words that mean Pride. It's the absolute opposite of humility, which is a correct view of oneself. It's rebellion against God. Pride is. I'm going to show you that in Scripture in just a second here. But one of the things that I've noticed in my life and in others is this. Pride often comes linked to other sins. So I want, to just, I want to just throw this out because I'm concerned that some of us in this room might think, yeah, so-and-so deals with pride, but it's not really an issue for me. Here's what I've found, okay? Pride is often connected to the sin of gossip. If you find yourself gossiping about other people, you may be that you deal with pride. And you say, how does that connect? Well, then your pride... You think you're better than other people, so you kind of like to tear them down, right? Pride is often connected to materialism, a fascination with material things, because it's, a, it's an inappropriate sort of attention given to oneself. And so when you have pride in your heart, you're willing to go ahead and spend all of your finances on yourself. I find that pride is often connected to sexual sin. Well, how is that? 1 Corinthians 7 makes it very clear that your body is not your own. If you are married, your body belongs to your spouse. And so sexual sin is connected there to an overabundance of association with yourself. This is about me. It's about meeting my needs. 
So I find sexual sin is often connected with pride. This pride thing is a chronic problem for humans. Now, what do I mean by chronic? A doctor would say that a chronic condition is one that comes up on a regular basis. And you can even have times where it seems that it's gone, but then it flashes up again, right? I mean, go through the history of mankind. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You see pride right there. And the cunning serpent comes to Eve and says to her, you can be like God. You can be like God. What is he doing? He's reaching in with his hook to pride. And it continues. Genesis chapter 11. That's the Tower of Babel. Where all these people gather together and they want to make a tower. You know why they want to make a tower? To make a name for themselves. They want to build a tower to make a name for themselves. Flash forward to 1000 A.D., maybe 930 B.C., I mean to say. King Solomon writes the Proverbs. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, 17, 18, there are six things that God hates. And number one on the list, haughty eyes. Man struggles with pride. It's a real issue that we have. I want to show you, I want you to keep your finger here in Luke. I want, you to, I want you to go to a significant passage of Scripture, though. Go to Isaiah chapter 42. Let me show you the problem with pride. Isaiah 42. You've got to find Isaiah. It's in my, in my Bible, it's on page 1097 is where I'm at. So about the middle of your Bible. Isaiah is a prophet here. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And in chapter 42... God says through Isaiah something very significant about pride. I'm going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. God says in verse 6 of chapter 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. These are the people of God. God is their God. They are His people. He says in verse 7, Jesus quoted this passage in Luke chapter 4 when he's in the synagogue early on proclaiming he is the Messiah. He quoted this passage. You'll recognize it. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Jesus read this passage in the synagogue. He closed and he said, Behold, I am here. Look at the next verse though. Behold, I'm sorry, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. That is a declaration of the Lord against pride. God will not share His glory with another. And he will not allow praise to be given to idols. This is worship given to man-made objects. Or objects God has made, but material things that, we, that people worship in praise. God says no, but then he also says, I will not give my glory to another. So what this shows us is, with God, with God, When I demand glory for myself, when I try to take from God glory, you could call that pride. 
It is on the same level as idolatry. Wow. Pride is a big sin. I gave you in your worship notes um, a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the qualifications of an elder, of a pastor. And it says there that he must not be a recent convert. So in other words, these are qualifications that, that God has given the church that must be true of those who serve the church in spiritual shepherding oversight. He must not be a recent convert, so he shouldn't be new in the faith, or he may become puffed up with conceit. The New King James Version says pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride is the big sin. Satan started it, and we keep finishing it. In Luke chapter 22, the disciples live it. Let's look at it now in detail here of the different elements of pride that we see. First of all, first of all, um, you know, we see there's a pride of rejection. There's a pride of rejection. Look at verse 21 to 23. Judas betrays Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. He gives up the one that he followed as master for three years. We're calling this the pride of betrayal. Can you get into the mind of Judas for a minute? I want you to notice that the disciples, they are surprised. They don't point their finger at Judas. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And rather than point at Judas, they say, is it me? So they are more likely to accuse themselves than Judas. What's that show us? Judas has been living a lie for three years. He is part of the twelve who were sent out and given authority over demons and over sickness. He's part of the 72 that are sent out to preach the gospel. And folks, God used him. There's nothing in the gospels that record that the other disciples could do something and Judas could not. No. It's nowhere there. But yet Judas betrayed Christ. So what this shows us is that we can be under the teaching the greatest teaching of the greatest teacher in all of history, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can still be betraying Him in our heart because of pride. Because of pride. We've all been there. Where you hear something expressed from the Word of God and God's Spirit says, yes, this is true. And we say, nah, it's not for me. Judas got real good at this. Because here's the thing about prideful betrayal. It's a learned behavior, and we improve with practice. The more we lose our sensitivity to God's Spirit, the more our sensitivity to our own pride grows. And then the more we see it in our life. So be aware. If God's Spirit convicts you of something, respond to it. Like I've had people say to me, I've had people say, 
you know, I, I, I want to do this, but I just don't think it'd be right for me to do it. And it, it has been time, I don't want to give examples because I don't want to, I don't want to cause anybody to, you know, try to live somebody else's call, but it'll be something that I know God is okay with it. There are gray issues that I know that they are gray, and the Lord really doesn't, doesn't have a strong opinion on it. An example of this would be from Romans and 1 Corinthians, the, the offering of meat to idols. God said, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. I mean, that's not a direct quote, but that's the idea. But in that scenario, come back over here, I don't say to them, it's okay. Go ahead and do that thing. It's okay. Go ahead. Now, somebody else might hear me and say, well, why don't you correct them? Why don't you correct them? Because we need to train ourselves to respond to the Spirit of God. Listen, if the Spirit of God is prodding you, respond. Respond. If God's Spirit says, do something, don't betray it in your pride. Respond. You say, well, what if I end up doing something that God didn't really lead me to? Don't worry. He'll take care of it. He'll work that out in time. I'd rather have somebody responsive to God who maybe responds sometimes in the wrong way than the stick in the mud that says, nah, I'm good at not responding. No. The pride of betrayal. Okay, then we go down to verse 24. It's shocking to me that they go from, could it be me, to, I want to be the greatest. Isn't this remarkable what they do? I mean, they're arguing over, maybe it's me. And then they argue over, I want to be regarded as the greatest. And this is not a new argument among the disciples. Matthew chapter 20 says it is James and John arguing, and they send their mother to Jesus, that she might appeal to Jesus, that they sit at his right and left in the kingdom of God. This is something they've been dealing with over and over and over. I picture it this way. You know, it's like all, the, the 13 are together, the 12 disciples and Jesus, okay? And Jesus is like, hey man, i got to run over there for just a minute. And Jesus runs over there to do something, and the 12 are like, okay, he's gone. I want to be first. No, I think I should be. I mean, after all, I'm Peter, I'm the leader. Yeah, but I'm James, and I'm really, really cool. And John, yeah, but I'm really good at soccer. You know, and they just had this big argument about why they should be first. So Jesus tells this story, and it's an awesome one. The kings of the Gentiles. So in other words, you guys are used to this. This is the way it works. When you're the boss, this is you. You exercise lordship over the people that you oversee. And those in authority over them are called the benefactors. So the big guy gets all the benefits from you running around and doing all the things. I mean, that's how the life works, right? That's how the world runs. The important people employ us to do things for them, and then they give us some money, but really the benefit is all up the ladder. I mean, that's the way everything works in the world, is it not? That's the world system. And Jesus points that out. In verse 27, For who is greater? One who reclines at the table. Now what that means is, picture they're all now in the culture of the day, they are reclining on one elbow, actually it would be crying on their, on their left elbow, and they eat with their right hand. Okay? So, picture them laying there, strange as it may seem to us, how they did it. They're leaning back on their elbow, eating, and Jesus says, who's greater? The one who reclines? Or the one who serves? 
So the 12, 13, are there eating. And what should be happening is the servants should be running around, washing their feet, refilling their cup, getting them bread. He says, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And what did every single disciple, what did they all do? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The greater one is the one who reclined at the table. That's how it works, right? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus had already washed their feet. He went around and washed their feet. Matthew 20 records that this is where Jesus said, this is when Jesus said, the Son of Man, He does not come to be served, but to serve and give His ransom for many. You see, this is the the message of Jesus, to serve. But pride says, serve me. Really what we're looking at here is the pride of position. I want the position, I want the position of pride. I deserve to rule. I deserve to rule. You know, we are not to, listen to this, we are not to suck the life out of other people. That's what this benefactor is doing. He's sucking the life out of other people. We are called to insert life into those in our sphere of influence. Let me tell you, one of the greatest ways I think this can be played out is men, you, in your home, men, husbands. This is what it means to be a leader in your home. The leader is not sitting on the recliner calling for the iced tea. Now, don't get me wrong. There's many times when I say to Nancy, Hey, uh, could you get me some ice cream? Okay, that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm saying. But if that's where I'm always at, that's not the leader. The leader is living out this, what Jesus is called, called to. And he serves. He serves. Giving his own life to bring life to those he serves. So it's not Ward Cleaver. That's not what is meant by a Christian leader. Well, I'm home, honey. Sit down. Where's the food? Right? I mean, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not a Christian leader. And that's what Jesus here, in this moment of calling for position, points him to. But then we go to Peter. You've got to love this guy. You've got to love this guy. So in verse number 31, we see the pride of personal strength. I want to take a minute here and just really develop this because this is powerful what happens here. We're going to return to it in a couple of weeks because we're going to see this very prophecy fulfilled. Verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now it's interesting here. Let me tell you something about this. Something that you miss here in your ESV or NIV or NASB, whatever version it is. Verse 31. You see, something happens in Greek that we can't do in English. Simon, Simon, behold, behold, Satan demanded to have... If we were going to really translate this into a vernacular, we would understand. It'd be this. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all. It's plural. It's not just Simon Peter. Satan is demanding to have you all. He wants to sift you all like wheat. Throw you up and let the wind blow out the worthless. I'm reminded of Satan with Job. Satan comes in the presence of God and he accuses Job. He says, oh, you think Job is all great. Let's strike his body and see what he will do. He'll hate you. He'll deny you if you you take away the blessing you've given him. See, this is Satan's way. This is Satan's way of attacking the beloved of Christ. He comes in and he attacks the believer as in God's authority allowing this to happen in an effort to sift like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Now it's singular. Isn't this interesting? He demands to sift you all. But he's speaking now to Simon Peter. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now listen to this. And when you have turned again, getting goosebumps because of what this means. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Awesome moment. Awesome. Satan wants to take you out, Peter. And you're going to fail. You're going to fail. But you're not done. I'm going to restore you. And then you're going to strengthen your brothers. Great moment. Great moment. Look where Peter goes, though. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, it's easy for us to laugh at Peter because we know what's coming. But man, you've got to love his heart. You've got to love his heart. Preach, pray, or die, right? I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. I'll go wherever you want me to go. If it means my life, I'll give it to you. You've got to appreciate his heart. You've got to appreciate his sensitivity. There's no betrayal here, okay? He's off a little bit, I know. He doesn't come through, I know, I know. But don't worry. He'll be restored and he will strengthen his brothers. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. Go back and look at verse 33. Look what Peter really says. Look what he says. Don't miss it here. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison or death. Is that what he says? Uh Uh-uh. Every word is inspired. Every word. Peter says... Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. I think we get to see the heart of Peter here. And maybe we'll be, have a little more grace towards him. Here's what he's saying. Jesus, I remember that day we walked out on the water, you and I, and we did it. Jesus, I remember the day that we healed many people, you and I, and we did it. Jesus, I remember when we were out there teaching, you and I, and I will go with you to prison or even death. I'll go with you, Jesus, right by your side. And what Jesus is saying is, 
my friend, my beloved, I'm going to die. And you're not going to see me anymore. I'm going to go. And this is something that Peter could not get at this point. But don't worry. God's going to restore him and he's going to strengthen his brothers. We see this pride, this pride going on. Somebody said pride is the greatest sin of all. Maybe. Let me share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis. I thought this was pretty good. I'll put it up on the screen, I believe. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. True, right? And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. That's the thing about pride. When it's there in us, we can't look to God. So I want to take this same passage now, and I want to walk through it again, And I want us to see what we need to look at, okay? What we need to look at now that we realize that, okay, maybe pride is an issue for me. You say, oh, really? Okay, pride of betrayal, when God's Spirit prods us and we say no. Pride of position, I'm going to benefit from these relationships. Pride of personal strength, I can do it on my own. These are all prides. This is a pride that we all deal with. Now let's walk through it and see what it is that we need to see. First of all, let's go back up to verse number 19. And Jesus took the bread, and we had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them and said, This is My body, which is given for you. And in verse number 20, He said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. I want you to see your humility that's in Christ. You see, the same Jesus who became a man so He could die for all and so that He would have blood to shed because that's where life is, that same Jesus indwells us. He's in you. So the humility of Christ is in us. When we abide in Him, that same humility comes out. It's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So when you find yourself speaking pride, realize that's not the humility I have in Christ. That isn't it. Go to Christ and let Him abide in you. What an act of humility this is. What a moment of humility this is for Christ here in this account in the upper room. Jump down to verse number 28. You'll notice we kind of just skipped over that real quick. Look at verse 28. Now this is right after the disciples are arguing over who's going to be first in the kingdom, right? Who's going to be first? Look what Jesus' answer to their debate is. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now who's he talking to there? He's up in the upper room. From all accounts, as I look at the parallel accounts, I don't think Judas has left yet. We're really not sure from the Luke account. But when I look at the other Gospels, I think Judas is still here. Okay, And he says, you are those who have stayed with me. So now he is speaking to not the twelve. He's speaking to the eleven. You've stayed with me in my trials. You didn't betray me. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Eleven will rule in heaven. Say, who's the twelfth? His name is Matthias. He'll be given this role in Acts chapter 1. And we need to know that in the kingdom of God, these twelve men are not just your everyday guy. They have significant roles. This isn't you and me, folks. This is not you and me. This is not a time where you can take your name and put it in place of you. Nope, not here. You're not going to rule over the twelve tribes on the throne in heaven. Sorry. If you're, you know, you struggle with that, you ought to read the rest of the passage because that's maybe his pride. But we do have an inheritance in heaven. We do. And so this whole thing about I want to be first, I want to be second, it's, it's opposite of what we have in Christ and what the future holds for us. Our eternity in Christ is where we need to look. So when, it, when you get treated like a second-class citizen, when somebody at work treats you in a way that this isn't fair, when your husband does yell for you to bring them the 14th glass of cold tea, and this is never returned, what do you do? You look future, is what you do. You look future. You have a future perspective. I don't live for here and now. I live for the kingdom of God. And my day is coming. That's how it is that martyrs don't turn from Christ. It's not that they have some kind of superpower that you or I don't have. They have eternal perspective. And finally, verse 32, the restoration that's offered. I already kind of stole my own thunder here. It just means so much to me. Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter, Simon. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And listen, you might say, because you know what happens, right? Let me just say, we'll see it in a couple weeks. Let me just say what happens. Okay, Jesus is arrested. All right? And everybody deserts Jesus. Except for John. And at this point, Peter and a young boy who's about 12 years old that's dressed in a cloak. I'll tell you about that in a second. They're kind of faithfully there watching Jesus. Somebody comes up to Peter and says, Hey, you're one of his followers, right? No. Somebody else. You're a follower, right? You follow Jesus. No. A servant girl now comes up and says, I know you. You're one of the followers of Jesus. And Peter now curses and says, I don't know the man. And right then, the rooster crows. And Jesus and Peter, their eyes meet. Peter runs off. And Jesus dies. Heartbreak. The heartbreak for Peter. You don't think he remembered this moment? I mean, this happened probably 12 hours before. His denial is 12 hours, maybe, potentially less than that. This denial is just 12 hours after this conversation. He wants to die, folks. 
He wants to die. So then, there's a story. These women come back to Peter. Now they're hiding. The the eleven all are gathered up. They're hiding because they're sure now the Roman soldiers are going to look for them. They're hiding. And his women come and say, he's been resurrected. We saw him again. Oh, you're crazy. Get that crazy woman out of here. But more accounts come back of people who saw the resurrected Christ. And then one day Peter is out in a boat fishing. It's just been a few days. Peter is out in the boat fishing. He's a professional fisherman. I mean, this whole, you know, disciple thing didn't exactly pan out. So he went back to fishing. He's there in the boat. Somebody calls to the beach, from the beach. Hey, how's the fishing going? Whole interaction goes on. Peter realizes it's Jesus. He's off the shore now in a boat. He dives into the water, swims to the edge meets Jesus. John chapter 21. Go there. John chapter 21. Verse 15. They had breakfast. Isn't that cool? Jesus and Peter had breakfast. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I believe, my, I think, I think he was, his hands went everywhere. All these people, John, James, these fishing boats, everything. Do you love me more than this? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said a second time. Some time goes by and he says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. 17. A third time he says to Peter, do you love me? And now Peter, characteristic of him, you know, you ask him once, he gives you an answer. You ask him a second time, he answers again. You ask this the third time, you ask this guy the third time, and he's like, Yes! Remember the little girl? Yeah, yeah. I don't know the man. Peter now, I mean, his personality is coming out here. He says, Lord, you know everything. It's like Christian cursing, you know? You know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You say, what in the world does that mean? John tells you, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter was crucified. Tradition tells us that when they went to crucify him, He resisted to such a level, he said, no, I cannot die in the same way that Jesus did. And so the Roman soldiers, being as helpful as they are, said, fine. And they crucified him upside down. Most of you know that. 
What was the change? What was the change in this man, Peter? Can I tell you it was being restored by Christ? It was exactly what Jesus told him. Clear back in the upper room. When you are restored, you go strengthen your brothers. When you are brought back, you go strengthen your brothers. And folks, he did just that. Read Luke, the sequel. That's called the book of Acts. And look at Peter. He is out there strengthening his brothers, proclaiming Christ. He's the leader there in the new church. And he's beat and he keeps preaching. He's rejected and he keeps preaching. The the prophecy that Jesus told them when He said, you know what, you better get a knapsack for yourself. I know I told you, don't worry, we'll be taken care of. That won't happen to you in the future. You're going to have to take care of your own needs. The other people aren't going to provide for you. That happened to Peter. They're starving and they're hungry, but yet he did not turn from Christ. And the difference in him after that night is the same difference in you. Acts chapter 2 tells us what that difference is. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came and lived in Peter. And he was able to strengthen his brothers. What's that tell us? What's that tell us? Pride is an awful enemy. It will weaken you. Pride will weaken you to become something you never thought you could ever do. Betray your Lord. It will weaken you to where we demand to be in first place. It will weaken you to depend upon your own strength. It's undue confidence in myself. But the Spirit of God is here to strengthen you and to strengthen others. Will you turn from your pride today? Are you ready to confess to the Lord? I know I've got pride. I've been leaning on me and not on the Spirit of God. Listen, God restores. Maybe you've lived a life of pride. Maybe the people around you are used to you being a prideful monster. Okay? Oh, you know, you know how to put on the face here. That's pride, right? You know how to put on the act here because you got pride. So you play the part here, but the people who know you and love you most are afraid of you because you're the benefactor. And you take turn today and God will restore. Let's pray to Him. Lord Jesus, You know our hearts. We want to be sensitive to You, Lord. We want to be sensitive to You. God, I I ask that You would convict us of pride where it comes. It's a chronic problem that we have. I thank You for Your forgiveness, Lord, and Your restoration. Lord, that You come again to our hearts and convict and restore. And all You call for us to do is to agree with You that we are the problem. You are the answer. So Lord, I want to lead now in a prayer of confession. Lord, we confess our sin of pride.
specific examples are coming to mind, Lord. We confess them now. Lord, we look to your forgiveness, to your restoration, to your redemption, to your willingness to take us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we invite the presence of your Spirit to move us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.